Let's read our passage today. It's called the Second Night Vision. We're beginning with Zechariah chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. And I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. So the second night vision of Zechariah, uh, basically four horns and four craftsmen. We might be better um, informed to use the word blacksmiths. These are horns that were modeled after the horn of perhaps a bull, you know, one straight horn like you might think of, but they were made out of metal to symbolize the power of the nation. Uh, like you might see uh, for our nation, the, a bronze eagle, right? These are symbols of the power of the nation. So blacksmith doesn't sound like it's something that's going to terrify the nations, but he'll just come and lop off the horn to symbolize that God himself is going to bring the nation down. So the main point is that all opposition to God will be smashed. That's the main point. That's pretty clear from from the vision, but let's unpack it a little. Verse 18, the horns are like the horn of a goat or a bull. This is the shortest of the eight visions, and it's related to the first vision we looked at last time. Remember, the first vision ended with two things. Judgment of the nations, verse 15, and blessing for God's people, verse 17. Judge the bad guys, help the good guys, right? That's pretty clear. In verse 17, we read the promises of God's comfort and blessing, his overflowing prosperity to the people. Remember that? That's we just left that, and now we're moving into our, our second night vision. So this second night vision could be seen as an extension or a follow up to the first vision, except for the first words in verse 18. And I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, Get used to those words. Watch for them again and again. You could, if you're an underlining kind of person, not in the church Bible, in your own Bible, you could underline this sentence, right? Um, I lifted up my eyes and saw and behold. That set of words is an indicator of, of a new vision. A uh, similar phrase in chapter 1, verse 8 for the first vision. Now here, chapter 1, verse 18 for the second vision. Exact phrase will appear in chapter 2, verse 1. That's the third vision. A similar phrase in chapter 3, 1 for the fourth vision, chapter 4, 1 for the fifth vision. And the exact same phrase recurs again in chapter 5, 1 for the sixth vision. And the phrase chapter 5, 5, a similar phrase for the seventh vision. And then the exact same phrase repeated again in chapter 6, 1 for the eighth vision. So get used to this. Lift it up my eyes. Lift it up my eyes. Now, back to our vision. Chapter 118, when Zechariah lifts his eyes, He's surprised to see something. What does he see? Basically, four horns. Now, again, these are understood to be animal horns, like a bull's horn. Uh, Through the Old Testament, horns is symbolizing strength and power, especially the power of a king of a nation. So the symbolism matches the meaning for the animal. The horn is the source of its strength, right? You see a video news clip of a bullfighter, probably in Spain, right? Uh, being lifted up from the ground, like, ooh, right? Whether or not the bull has a horn on it is intensely, um, you know, uh, necessary to know or 
um, changes the scene. Whenever we see that, um, if the bull had no horn, it would still be bad, but maybe not as terrifying or deadly an encounter for the bullfighter. Same thing. The horn symbolizes all the power behind it. Um, today, countries have symbols of power. Ours is an eagle, strong in flight, right? Russia's symbol is a bear. Ancient Egypt was a lion. Countries have picked wolves, horses, elephants, gorillas, and other things that I think are not quite as strong looking. Uh, but in the ancient world, the horn was used even as a part of the official ceremony of the king's rule and reign. When a king would start off his rule, he would be anointed with oil being poured out of a what? Out of a horn, because it's hollow inside, so it becomes like a pitcher. You fill it with this anointing oil, and then you, the priest usually would pour the oil onto the king, saying, you know, this is your, your power time. You, you're coming into power. Um, so the vision of four horns is an image of national strength, multiple nations in strength, right? So the word horn is used five times in just these four verses, which shows the focus of the vision is the strength of the nations and how they have used their power. That's the issue. How have the nations used their power and to what extent are they giving account to God for how they've used that power? Hint, hint, related to how they've related to God's people. So Babylon came, attacked Jerusalem, and take the people home for 70 years. Eventually, they have to give an answer to God for that. Same for Assyria, then Persia, right? So you see where this is going. Verse 19, Zechariah receives help to interpret the vision of the horns. These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Oh, right. So he asks the angel, and the angel says, these are the nations that attacked Jerusalem. It all makes sense. So historically, the nations that attacked Jerusalem and took away captives, first Assyria in 722, 587 Babylon, smaller nations also did violence to them. Remember, if you were here for our minor prophet study of Obadiah, the nation of Edom, uh, sinfully gloated over the defeat of Judah and turned fleeing Judeans over to Babylonian officers. There were also the Philistians, not to mention the Ammonites, who did violence against Judah. All of them, not just four, all of them will have to give an account to God. Well, then why four horns? It's a symbol of everything, like the four corners of your piece of paper. It indicates everything in your piece of paper. The four corners of the earth. If you look in terms of a flat map that you lay down, it's everything from top to bottom, left to right, four corners of the map. Right? We, um, we understand this to mean all nations, the totality of hostile nations in the world taking actions against God's people who have to give an answer. So next is these four craftsmen or four blacksmiths. Verse 21, after the horns, the nations, scattered Judah, no one could raise his head. Well, in come the blacksmiths to terrify the nations and cast down the horns of the nations who had, quote, lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. Well, as a result, what will the people of Judah be able to do? They'll be able to lift their heads. So the symbolism is twice over in um, verse 21 where they used to be able to not lift their heads because they're in shame and they're prisoners of war. Now they can lift their heads. Meanwhile, those who had attacked them are weighed down and their heads go down. So it fits with the actions and themes of the prophet Zechariah who keeps saying to lift up his eyes. In order to lift up your eyes, you have to lift up your head. And having these horns prevents them from, from doing it. So cut off the horns. 
So the main idea to catch is that the craftsmen or these blacksmiths perform a function for God. If they are walking over and cutting off the metal horn on whatever statue, it's symbolic of God coming over and cutting off the power of the nation. You're not going to do this anymore. He used four craftsmen, again, to symbolize the totality of God's persons, right? bringing an end to injustice so evident in the world. So the encouragement of this to suffering people is to know that all opposition to God will be smashed. These visions bolster the confidence in God that he is committed to justice despite current oppression, current injustice that people were experiencing. Zechariah sees this vision that the blacksmiths are ready to break off or cut off the horns of the nations who are responsible for scattering Judah. And the vision depicts the coming justice of God coming to the land on his enemies in a um, probably surprising manner to them. And it finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Again, you fast forward to how this was fulfilled in Jesus. He became, as it were, the blacksmith of Zechariah's second vision. He showed in his ministry, his death and resurrection, that God topples injustice through the gentleness of Jesus and his sacrifice of himself. It's like backwards. How does a blacksmith terrify an entire nation? How does a little rabbi speaking gentleness and being crucified terrify all the nations. It's because, like the regular blacksmith of the vision, toppling the whole nation because he works for God, it seems to be, it goes against their intuition that the death of Jesus would topple the nations, but don't forget his resurrection. It's all about his resurrection. That's how God works through the world, is through his power, his um, people, his spirit, as we'll see in, in future vision. So we as Christians are called to pursue justice, of course, but in nonviolent ways. We're never called to take up the sword. Uh, shame on us for the crusades, etc. Right? Peter was told to put his sword away. Characterized by gentleness and willingness to sacrifice is our pursuit of justice. As we prayerfully engage others and the world, we should work against injustice in whatever ways God gives us to do. We're kind of the blacksmiths then, right? Jesus first and then we in Christ, as Christians, work in a similar way, gently join with Christ in the horn-toppling work of establishing justice wherever we go. So that's the second vision. We move to the third vision. Now on your handout, you'll see uh, number three, longing for the presence of God. I'll spend a little bit more time on this one on purpose, less time on the other ones, just so you know. We're going to get there. So chapter 2, 1 through 13, I just want to read the first verse and I'll reference the rest as we go. Chapter 2, 1, third vision. I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Think tape measure. Think contractor, right? All right, so many of the people to whom Zechariah preached were old enough to remember the exile. They had just returned home recently, right? Children are constantly born and people are raised up, but most of his audience, they remember what it's like to be prisoners of war. That's to the people to whom Zechariah is speaking. The worst part about exile was the abandonment by God, the sense of abandonment by God. He hadn't abandoned them. He told them, you're, you're in time out for 70 years. I'm bringing you back. But it felt to them like abandonment by God. And maybe you know this, that once you've been abandoned by someone, you wonder whether it's going to happen again or continue. And it's very tough to trust again. So we keep wondering whether that person will abandon us. And for them, their thoughts of God is, they're wondering 
whether God will come close to them again with his presence. Notice line three, longing for the presence of God. Okay? You can build a temple, but if you don't have the presence of God, have you gained anything? I'll take you to Valentine's Day. You can have a really nice restaurant. You're out of sorts with your love, right? And you have a white tablecloth and a, and a candle. You've ordered the nicest dinner. You even hired one of your friends to be the waiter with the white tablecloth thing. But if she doesn't show up, you haven't gained anything. The presence of God is what they really desire, right? For their thoughts about God, it's natural for them to wonder, okay, we're back in Jerusalem. Is God going to come back to Jerusalem? So they could rebuild the temple, but would God's glory be seen in it? The glory of God was always seen as the presence of God. And since they had been so sinful as to require a chastisement of 70 years in length, were they still so sinful that the presence of the Holy Spirit might cause them terror instead of comfort? I regularly get calls at the church for um, young students who have done something wrong at the school, pulled a fire alarm, talked back to the teacher, spray-painted something, something even in the community, and they're calling to do community service. I always ask them a couple questions. One is, how many hours of community service do you have to do? And if they say five or ten, it's like, oh yeah, you just offended somebody. But if it's more like 50, 60, 70, so okay, you presented a danger to the entire school. I see that. Um, so the idea of 70 years in chastisement and exile said they were pretty bad. So now they're wondering, okay, God can bring us back home, but do we want God to show up? Because if God, the holy, holy, holy God shows up and we're this sinful, it's not going to be as pleasant as we might think. So we do want God, but do we want God? You see all the, the, the designs around the concern. So the Third night division answers these concerns. Remember, vision one was God judges the nations and restores Jerusalem. Bad on the bad guys, good on the good guys, right? Then vision two focuses on judging the nations. Bad on the bad guys. So guess what vision three will do? Good on the good guys, right? So vision three focuses on God's restoring Jerusalem. And he develops that theme here. So the vision says, yes, God will return to Jerusalem. Yes, God will show tender mercies. God will again choose his people. What a beautiful phrase. And God will stretch a measuring line over the city. We need to understand that. So the vision of the man with a measuring line in his hand comes in two parts. The actual vision is verses 1 through 5. And then the second part is the explanation of the vision in verses 6 through 13. So let's walk through this. Verse 1, Zechariah lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, remember that, this time, Zechariah saw a vision of a man with a measuring line in his hand. The measuring line, like a modern tape measure, is associated with building something, such as the foundation of the earth, Job 38.5, building the city, Jeremiah 31, 38, 39, building the city walls, Ezra 3, verse 7, or building the new temple, Ezekiel 40, verse 3. So to start a vision with an image of a man with a measuring line would arouse expectations of something being constructed, right? Somebody shows up at your door with an orange construction hat on and the orange vest, and they have tools in their hands, and they say, I'm with the village, and we're going to tear up your street, right? So you expect that there's going to be noise and big machinery. They expect there's going to be construction coming. you got a man with a, with a blueprint and a measuring line, as it were, in his hand. So, remember, there's still no city wall around Jerusalem. They just got home. They haven't been able to build a city wall yet. The temple 
had been in the early stages of reconstruction. They got as far as the foundation, but then it stalled. For 17 years, they've been stalled, busy building their own homes, trying to get their fields in order. But the man with the measuring line receives a surprising instruction. The angel told the young man, verse 4, not to build walls. Jerusalem shall be without walls, verse 4. Why? How is that a blessing? An ancient city without walls is like you leaving your front door wide open when you go to bed. Somebody could walk right into your house, rob you, and so on, right? How are they protected if they don't have city walls? We read in verse 5, get this. God says through the angel, I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be glory in her midst. So here's Jerusalem. God says, I'll be the wall of fire, and I'll be in the midst. I'll be with you and protect you. Don't bother building a wall. you got the best wall ever. The living God is fire, protecting us from enemies. So God offered to be the wall of fire. The dwelling of God was to encompass not just the temple, the whole city. He will live in the whole city. Is God coming? They want the presence of God? Yes, he's coming. So the security and safety of Jerusalem is not to be accomplished by man-made walls, but promised by the presence of God himself in the fire. In other words, it's not the time right now for rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Don't worry, God can keep your city safe. Right now is the time to focus on the rebuilding of the temple so God can be worshipped because he deserves to be worshipped. And God will defend the city with his people putting a priority on building the temple to the God who receives worship. So we move to the interpretation now, verse 6. We look at chapter 2, verses 6 through 13 now. Um, Still the theme is the presence of the Lord. Will they have the presence of the Lord? The vision showed God is a wall of fire, so it seems yes. Now we need that confirmed. So verse 6 brings a command to those who had not yet returned from exile. Oh, Jewish people over in Babylon still... Right? This is to whom verse 6 is addressed. Return from the land of the north. Those of you Jeremiah students, right? What's the land of the north? Babylon. Verse 7, escape to Zion. I love that. It reminds me of that old Wisconsin bumper sticker, escape to Wisconsin. I think we're saying to our Illinois friends, escape to Wisconsin. Come spend your money up here, right? Escape to Zion. It's beautiful. Maybe that's where they got the phrase from. Anyway, uh, this is aimed at those who dwell with the daughter of Babylon, verse 7. Verse 8, the Lord will turn the tables on Babylon because the people are the apple of his eye. You just poked God in the the center of his eye. right? You, You took God's people away from Jerusalem. Yeah, he was chastising them and used you to do it, but you're still responsible for having poked God in the eye. Verse 8, he really likes those people. You're in trouble. Verse 9, God will shake Babylon. Verse 10, He tells his people to sing and rejoice. Wait, why should they sing and rejoice? Here's the assurance for which we've been waiting. Quote, verse 10, don't miss this. I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. That's it right there. Longing for the presence of God, we have the presence of God. You set up your whole Valentine dinner. She's an hour and a half late. There she comes, (laughs) right? Yeah, yeah. This is what they always wanted. Dwelling in our midst is God himself. Verse 11, the other nations can join in the worship of God. Verse 12, Judah will be the Lord's portion. He will choose Jerusalem. 
Verse 13, be silent all humans before the Lord, for he has roused himself. I love that. It, maybe that's where C.S. Lewis got in his Chronicles of Narnia. God is on the move. He has roused himself. Uh, we note the contrast that Babylon is being plundered, verse 9, while Jerusalem is secure. Isn't that interesting? Babylon's being plundered. Jerusalem, with no walls, is secure because of the wall of fire. So the longing for the presence of God is fulfilled, resulting in great rejoicing. In the first two visions, God's plan for the nations was judge them. Here we get a vision of that last day, the day when many nations can join themselves to the Lord, such that God will even call the nations, my people. Do you see that in verse 11? Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. Wait, Babylonians, if they will individually believe in God, they can become my people? Right? This is completely new in the third vision that wasn't there in the first two visions. And of course, that's fulfilled in the Great Commission. Go to all nations, teaching them, um, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, right? making disciples of God, all nations. It's not just Jewish people. God's inviting the nations. Rather than judging them only, he's inviting them to be saved as well. Just like the returning exiles from Babylon flowed and streamed into Jerusalem to worship him, now the nations are invited to flow and stream into Jerusalem to worship him and enjoy his presence. Of course, those nations will need to forsake their own gods. They'll need to be loyal to the Lord God. And it echoes what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 56, 6 and 7. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord and hold fast my covenant, I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, all peoples, all ethnos, right? The presence of the Lord in Jerusalem had the effect of a world magnet, drawing all people to himself. Fast forward to the words of Jesus in Jerusalem, in reference to his own death on the cross, listen to this, John 12, 32, and I, when I'm lifted up, will draw all people to myself. It's a magnet, it's a worldwide magnet centered in Jesus' death and resurrection. So the people stuck in their sins are changed from vulnerable to enemy attack to protected by God through a wall of fire. The work of Jesus makes a difference, fulfilled his promises for the people to go from barrenness to prosperity, from irrelevance on the world stage to the significance of the world stage, the center stage with the world streaming in. In other words, God declared he would change the world by entering the world. Of course, that promise is kept when Jesus came at Christmas, right, to be present with his people, even face to face. In fact, the angel announced that the name of the baby Jesus would be Emmanuel, God with us, the very presence of God. And like the Jerusalem of Zechariah's third vision here, Jesus embodied God's glorious presence. He walked among us, lived beside us, suffered with us in a broken world, and then he suffered for us on the cross. John 2, 19 to 22, he talks about himself being the true temple, the actual dwelling of God on earth. He had taught that the temple in Jerusalem isn't needed anymore. Forget about the building. It's all about Jesus. The very presence of God in person does away with any need for that building. Jesus himself is the way that God's kingdom is advanced. He is forsaken by God the Father, but then by his resurrection, he gets the Father's blessing. He gives the blessing of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to all. 
And again, Matthew 28, 20, I'm with you always. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Even when Jesus ascended and sent his spirit upon the church, day of Pentecost, Acts 2, the spirit indwells us. How do you get closer than God inside of you? It's fulfilled, more than beautifully fulfilled. Who wants to go back to Zechariah's day? We have the spirit of God inside of us. Um, the church has become the temple of God. And the dwelling place of God on earth is where we sense God's presence. The happening thing next Sunday is not where 11 versus 11 on a football field, nor is it that special one audience member who's trying to make her way from Japan. That's not where it's at on February 11. It's in the worship of the living God. That's the center of the world, and it's a magnet where God draws people to himself. God's presence. God's presence. Uh, Revelation 21.3, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. And in heaven there will be no need for a temple because the Lord himself is there. Forget the temple. Revelation 21.2, The nations will gather in heaven, people from every tribe and language and people and, and nation. Gates of heaven are forever open. They don't lock it up. They don't put security guards. Who will attack? <laughs> it's wide open. And you could think of it as the God of fire is there, so he's protecting us. But the fact is, he has vanquished all of his and our enemies. So, that I took a little longer on that on purpose. I wanted to roll out one, one of these visions more. You can see how they all go that way. But we'll just get a shorter version of each of these next ones. Um, verses 3 and 4. So if you're looking at your handout, I want you to notice the structure of it. I mentioned it last time. It's more like a diamond shape. One through eight, see how I tried to indent those? And I underlined four and five on purpose. Structurally, it tells us that this is the center of the visions. Uh, vision four and vision five, chapter three and chapter four, this is the center of it. And, and so often you'll see, um, you'll notice as I start to unpack chapter three that this is so often referenced. You know, the, the Zechariah the the, sees the priest, Joshua, with high priests that are, Garments that are dirty. So vision four, longing for the righteousness of God, visions of the high priest with pure clothes or vestments. And then vision five will be longing for the purposes of God, the visions of the golden lampstand and two olive trees. I know that sounds so Old Testament and distant, like lampstand, olive trees, that has nothing to do with my life, but it really does. It's just imagery. So let's go to our uh, fourth vision, chapter three. A vision of the high priest has pure clothes, comes in two sections. Verses 1 to 5, a heated exchange over Joshua's eligibility to be a high priest. And then verses 6 through 10, the angel of the Lord speaking to Joshua. So begin in verse 1. Zechariah sees a courtroom scene. So chapter 3, 1. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Verse 3, now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. That's not good. All right, so what does this mean? It's a courtroom of God. The angel of the Lord is the judge of the courtroom, of course. And we talked last time how the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate um, expression of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. You know, he always existed before time. 
there were a couple times in the Old Testament that Jesus appeared, and we call him the angel of the Lord. Angel simply means messenger. So it's a messenger of the Lord. You could delegate it to an angel, or you could send the Son of God himself as a pre-incarnate uh, vision. Okay, so this is, we understand this to be Jesus, right, judging the courtroom. Satan is the prosecutor, no surprise there. The person on trial is the priest. Why? Because he stands with filthy garments. So we've got to understand this. This is very important. If I didn't cover anything else in Zechariah, I should cover chapters uh, uh, 3 and 4 here and, and cover this. So this is very important. I want to do it more briefly than the last one, last vision, but still. This could be called the gospel according to Zechariah. God cleansed the priest and provided the priest with a righteousness from outside of the priest himself. That's justification. This is the gospel, Right? It's what we call sometimes alien righteousness, something from outside of oneself. You didn't clean yourself up and make yourself good enough. You were given an excellent record, which was Jesus' record. So the priest, by the way, is the grandson of the last high priest of the temple of Jerusalem before it was destroyed by the Babylonians. So the connection is on purpose to say those who were sinning before and those who were in exile still have not um, cleaned up their lives, still have filthy garments, right? The accuser is the same one who stood accusing Job, Satan. The defender of Joshua is the angel of the Lord, so the Lord Jesus already becomes his advocate, something we read later in 1 John for us, the pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. So the court scene begins not how you ordinarily begin a court scene. Usually, the court scene begins with the accusations against the accused. Why are we here? What are the accusations? What are you being charged with, right? That's not how it begins. I read it to you. How does it begin? It begins with a rebuke of the accuser. (laughs) According to verse 3, Joshua had filthy garments, so there must have been some truth to the accusations, but the Lord is rebuking Satan. Remember the sacrificial ceremony rules? that a priest would only enter the holiest room of the temple how many times per year? Once per year. And would he come in like with, you know, Saturday pajamas or sweatpants? He would wear his best, cleanest, special, once a year, church-going clothes, right? It's all spelled out for you. The linen garments symbolize the need for the mediator between God and man. Whoever's going to represent man, sinners to the holy God, has to come in the cleanest way possible. So for the priest to be dressed in filthy clothes is a big problem, not just for the priest. It's a problem for all of the people that the priest is supposed to represent. Please don't think this is just poor Joshua's problem. This is a problem for all the people. It's a problem for all of us, right? Our relationship with God is at stake. And I'm sorry, to, I'm not sorry because it's scripture, but I'm, I say these things to kind of help you to put your seatbelt on for what I'm about to say next because we don't say these sorts of things with children present and so on. The Hebrew word here for filthy is excrement. A very graphic understanding of a restroom trip all over him to show the uncleanness before God. And the worst defilement is, a, a worst defilement is hard for us to imagine. That's absolutely disgusting. Now you got it. You understand how it appears to God. And it shows that Joshua the priest 
representing the people, had been contaminated somewhere. It's before the exile, certainly. During the exile, certainly. Unfit for service in the new temple and the worship of a holy God. You can build a temple, but I don't know who you're going to have as a priest, because this guy's a mess, literally. So the accuser raises the question, can God cleanse past sins? Can God, the holy God, be worshipped by former sinners, by current sinners? And we get the answer in verse 4. The angel ordered the filthy garments to be removed. And the promise to clothe him with pure vestments. Verse 5, they put clean clothes and a clean hat on him. They call it a turban. Remember, according to the instructions in Exodus 28, that turban has a writing that says, holy to the Lord on it. It's literally written there. It's not a packer emblem. It's holy to the Lord on it. Not only can God cleanse the sins of his people, but God can cleanse the sins of the neighboring nations and call for a celebration. So then, verses 6 and 7, the angel of the Lord assured Joshua if he will walk in God's ways, he can have right, the right of access to God. Verse 8, the announcement of God's sign that he will bring his servant, whom he calls the branch. Verse 9, the engraving and the seven eyes on the stone is an allusion to the high priest's ephod and breastpiece, which had stones on it. The Lord will remove the iniquity not simply from Joshua the high priest, but from the land. Remove the iniquity from the land. It's all the people living in the land, right? And how long will it take God to do that? It's on back order. You know, it's got to be at least a few months. What could not be done by any of the priests in 70 years of chastisement in Babylon, God accomplished in one day. Isn't that pointing ahead to Good Friday? All it took was one death of the Son of God, and all the sins were cleansed. He accomplished it in one day. Third day rises again. Verse 10, looking ahead to that day, God says, everyone will invite his neighbor so that all nations will be welcome to enjoy the rewards of righteousness, which is safety in the land. Sin and its shame will be gone. The righteousness and its fruit will take its place and be enjoyed. 1 Kings 4.25, Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of King Solomon. So the vine and fig tree are mentioned here in verse 10 of sitting with neighbors, under the vine and fig tree is the opposite of being attacked and destroyed by the destructive invasion of Babylon. We're relaxing with our neighbors. Say, do you want another? <laughs> Pass the food. It's not an oppositional and violent environment. It's a peaceful environment with God and with neighbor, with neighboring nations. And when the servant of the Lord would come, the one called the branch in verse 8, he's the messianic figure, of course. It points us ahead to the Christ, Jesus. Uh, he would deal with us in the way that he's dealt with the priest. That is, the branch will remove our filthy garments and replace them with his righteousness, his righteous garments. And once he comes and does all that, in one day, there will be widespread joy and reconciliation to the point of safety and fellowship with all of our former enemies. So in the process of rebuilding the temple, which is, which is what Haggai and now Zechariah is calling the people to do, rebuild the temple, to start up that worship. Get the altar up get the temple going, they would need the purified priesthood. And it became a major concern. We still can't worship God if we don't have a purified priesthood. Could priests coming out of exile be made clean again, clean enough that they can represent us to God? And we ask the same kind of questions. Have we done such shameful things? Has our past continued to haunt us so consistently with guilt 
that we can't shake it and we don't feel like we have a right to be in the worship of the holy God on Sunday. We ask the same questions. Are we forever spoiled? And maybe we can sneak in the back and sit in the back and worship God, but we could never serve. Not, wor- not worthy. We ask the same questions. And God answers us clearly here, but again in Romans 8, verse 31 and following. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Not just forgiveness, but a calling to serve him, right? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Silence, right? No one can bring a charge against God's elect. It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that was raised. Who's at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans 8, 31 to 37. Can we really be clean again? Is there truly hope for us? Is my past too corrupted for me to be of use in the kingdom and to the church? And to answer our questions, we have this incredible vision from God, Zechariah 3. The courtroom of God itself opening up this question. And the picture is removing the filthy garments, replacing them with pure clothes that he didn't get, tells us God can cleanse any past no matter how soiled or defiled. No history of any person, no history of any marriage, no history of any church or any nation is beyond the reach of God's redemptive cleanser. Hebrews 10, 11, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 10, 14, by a single sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sacrificed. Uh, Hebrews 10, 1 through 14 says further, and Hebrews chapters 11 through 13 say, priests were unable to remove sin, no matter how hard they try, but God removes sin in one day. All right, uh, I did what I wanted to, is, which is covering, you know, ch- chapter 3 is absolutely crucial, the gospel according to Zechariah. Chapter 4 mimics that in a, in a, in a similar, um, different way. The um, lampstand and olive trees are, are kind of the, the equipment and me- um, machinery that supply the, the worship of God and the cleansing of, of sin for, for God's people but I've only got 10 minutes left, and what I told myself is I would definitely want to um, jump to the explanation of um, Vision 8. Okay, so you have Vision 5, longing for the purposes of God, the the lampstand and the olive trees. You have uh, Vision 6, longing for the authority of God. The vision of the flying scroll is... The scroll has the, the commands of God on it. So the Ten Commandments basically telling us that, that we're sinners. You have um, Vision 7, the longing for the authority of God. The woman in the basket is kind of like the, the queen of heaven. The false um, gods that the nations worship are symbolized by this woman. 
in the basket, and, and the basket is then lifted up and, and carried off to Babylon. It's the place where sin is dealt with. So that imagery is clear. But I, I wanted to get to uh, vision 8, longing for the victory of God, which um, you know, fills out, like it brings to a conclusion the eight, the eight visions. All right, so let me see. I thought I could cover more uh, each of these visions. So let me do vision eight, and then um, I'll mention some things for chapters six, uh, seven, and eight. And then I have a conclusion for us. So uh, vision eight. So chapter six, verse one, once again, Zechariah writes, guess what? I lifted up my eyes and saw and behold. So this time he sees four chariots uh, going up between two bronze mountains. And just like the horses alone back in vision one, if, if you remember from last week, also horses with chariots, same deal. It's evoking a military meaning. There's a connection between the colorful horses of vision one and the colorful horses of vision eight. Um, The horses go out to patrol the whole earth, we're told in both places. And both end with a picture of worldwide rest. So the first vision was at night in a valley under trees, dark as you could possibly get. But this vision takes place at dawn of a new day and in the mountains. So the movement from night to dawn or sunrise, a movement from darkness to light is a move from despair to hope. So already in these eight visions, which seem to have taken place in one night, they carried Zechariah through the night, so now he's already made it to the dawn, and things are looking better. Hope is on the rise. Formerly, he and the people were overwhelmed by defeat, and now there's dawning of a day of victory. They're explained by the fact that God avenges himself. He punishes the nations, so the night visions have sustained Zechariah and the people through their long night of discouragement. The night visions have brought Zechariah to a new day where hope is breaking through in the bright rays of sunshine on the horizon. So the image of a chariot with a horse is often used in the Bible to show God coming, God himself coming as a warrior to fight a battle. So the chariot shows both that God is king and that he's a military general. So the king in battle. For example, Psalm 104 He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides in the wings of the wind. So these um, two bronze mountains mentioned in verse 1 allude to two bronze pillars of the uh, temple porch or portico. One on the north and one on the south They had bronze um, pillars. And it's showing that God the warrior comes out of his temple in order to accomplish his purposes, to bless his people and to judge the nations. The word to go out is used seven times, which, of course, a, a number of completeness in the Bible, seven times. Seven times to go out is used in the vision. He, God, from his temple, sends chariots out into all the world, these colored uh, chariots, to, to show his, his dominance and power over the nations. Verses 2 to 3, all the colored horses are strong. No matter what their color is, they're strong. Verses 4 and 5, the angel explained to Zechariah, the Lord sent out chariots to the four winds meaning all the four directions. We would say the directions of the compass, north, south, east, and west, and they say the four corners of, of the world because they thought of the world as, as having uh, a, like a box area where there's four corners. And, and God is called in verse 5, the Lord of all the earth. 
So again, this is not just about Jerusalem, not just about Judah and Israel. It's about the creator God. Verse 6, the horses are sent north. Again, that's Babylon in addition to Syria. The horses are sent south. That would be Egypt. Verses 7 and 8, the horses are impatient to go, but they have to wait for the command to go. And then they patrol the earth and bring word that there's rest under the command of, of God's spirit. All right, so verse, um, chapter 6, verses 9 through 15, now past the, the visions. There's crowns, priests, branch, and temple mentioned. These are reports. Uh, the exiles from Babylon visit Jerusalem and bring gifts. The gold was used to make a crown for the priest, and the branch is someone who's descended from David's line. So when you combine the crown with the priest together, you get the office of king and the office of priest are found together in the Messiah Jesus. So during the exile, they had four fasts that they would call to each mark the destruction of Jerusalem. Now the exile is over. They've returned to Jerusalem, and they're asking, should we now stop the fasts? that marked the destruction of Jerusalem. So that's the big question in chapter 6. Chapters 7 and 8, the group asks for a ruling about that. Should we continue or stop the fasts marking the previous destruction? So chapter 7, verse 4 to chapter 8, 23, Zechariah preaches in order to answer that question, and he gives them this message about obeying from the heart. And it mentions that one day the Gentiles will be welcome to join in. So Basically, Zechariah chapters 1 through 8 are encouragement for the present, God's people. And then we'll see next time, chapters 9 through 14 are encouragement for the future. So um, I just wanted to give this, this um, parting, parting statement now at the end. If you fast forward to Jesus, what have we seen from these night visions and how does it point us to Jesus? For those who believe that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, they desired for Jesus to be a military warrior. They, you kind of see where they get that from, right? From, from reading places like Zechariah. They expect that Jesus will pull together a militia under the power of God and overturn their Roman overlords. Well, Jesus did come to overturn the powers of this world, but not in that momentary, military way that they expected. God would return to Jerusalem or Zion to deliver his people from the hand of the oppressors, but it was by a very different manner. It was by preaching the good news. It was by his death for, uh, to cleanse them, save them from their oppressive sins, and resurrection and victory over sin, death, and the devil. In Jesus, all the evil of all the nations had met their match. In Jesus, all the pagan powers are being conquered. It far exceeds a local coup over the Romans for just uh, Jerusalem and its environs. The vision of Jesus was for all the earth. And, and like our main point at the top of your paper, for Zechariah to lift up his eyes, so Jesus lifted up his eyes above the turmoil. Jesus cared for more people than just his immediate followers and those in Jerusalem area. When Jesus read the book of Zechariah, what did Jesus understand from the visions we've just studied? He understood that God is the Lord over all the nations and he's the Lord of all the earth. So he came to defeat evil that lay behind the Romans, that lay behind the Persians, that lay behind the Babylonians, that lay behind the Assyrians, that lay behind the devil. Going all the way back, Jesus is a far greater warrior than his disciples or those who were disappointed could ever have imagined. In his death and resurrection, he dealt the death blow to Satan. 
and his army of demons. So we read in Colossians 2.15 that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. That Jesus is truly victorious, not... He's, he's just like a military general leading the enemies in a victory parade through the cheering crowds coming back home. 2 Corinthians 2.14, Paul envisions this. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. How will it all end? 1 Corinthians 15.24, then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom of God to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet the last enemy to be destroyed is death and the imagery of Zechariah's horses is picked up then by the apostle John under the direction of the Holy Spirit when John wrote Revelation 6 1 through 8 listen to this I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder come and I looked and behold a white horse hmm And its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I saw, I heard the living creature say, Come, and I looked and behold, a black horse. Its rider had a pair of scales in his hand and I heard in what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked and behold a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and famine and pestilence and wild beasts of the earth. Revelation 6, 1 to 8 matches Zechariah 6, 1 to 8, if that's not convenient enough. And at his return, Jesus Christ the King will bring the dawn and will completely fulfill what Zechariah could only envision in the night. All forces hostile to God and his kingdom will be defeated, and the everlasting kingdom will be established securely and permanently. We live out of that hope because of the fact that Christ, our victorious king, has come, and he is on his way. One lesson from Zechariah is to stop dwelling so much on the difficulties that we're facing. And start focusing on the triumph that Christ has won, is winning, and will finally win. The lesson is, as the top of your page says, to lift up our eyes above the turmoil and set our eyes on Jesus. Like Paul wrote in Romans 8.37, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And we have it from uh, Romans 16.20, our confidence that God will soon crush Satan under our feet. So we lift up our eyes above the turmoil. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, look at these ancient words, as we see them fulfilled in the Lord,